welcome to this week's episode of the Compass Equip Podcast. This is Pastor Evan, and I'm joined with Pastor Hayden. Hey, hey. There it is. I was wondering what noise I Excited to be here, to be completely frank. What's Frank have to do with it? Or Todd. Whatever. I feel bad for Frank. Hopefully Frank is honest. Frank Frank is super frank. Yeah. Well, here at Compass Bible Church, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ, including Frank. Enthusiastically exist. That's right. Enthusiastically to make disciples, including the Franks in the world, by reaching people for Christ, teaching people to be like Christ, and training people to serve Christ, including Frank. Mm. And everything that we do here, including this podcast, is to fulfill that mission of reaching, teaching, and training. All right, Compass, we are almost done with our first series in the book of Matthew in our People in Promises series, Exiled from God. And this is based out of the text of Matthew 1, 7 through 11, essentially beginning with Rehoboam, all the way ending with Jeconiah, and the time of the exile. But Pastor Hayden, your main focus of your sermon as we dove in into the kings of Judah specifically, it was to help us to see this royal genealogy, to remind us of our need to rely on God's promises, leading us to properly worship him as we await our final vindication. Now, before we cover the teaching points, uh, Pastor Hayden, what is the one thing we need to take away that maybe we need to, this, we need to change in as we walk away from the sermon? When we look at the meta-narrative of Scripture— from Genesis to Revelation. What is meta-narrative? Meta, the whole thing, right? As we look at the whole story, uh, not just Paul Harvey's the rest of the story, which is the New Testament, right? The whole story, the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we should take away, even particularly from this week's sermon, as we look at fully trusting and relying on God's promises, is to see from Genesis all the way to Revelation that there's only one faithful character without fault throughout the text, and it's God. Every other person is being drugged on the coattails of God to accomplish whatever it is that they set out to do, if indeed they do it successfully in the script, in the narrative of Scripture. It is only within and only because of the perfection and covenant faithfulness of God to provide that person what they need to succeed. And that is so important with this sermon is because we need to rely on God's promises. And the only way we're going to do that is riding on the coattails of God. The only way the kings were ever going to succeed is riding on the coattails of God. But sometimes they wanted to ride on their own coattails. Most of the time. And then they stepped on their own coattails. A lot. Have you ever seen somebody walking on their own coattails? They trip and they fall and they can't walk straight. I've done that a few times. I'm done with that uh, illustration. The point being is this all throughout scripture, the only people that make it are the ones who ride on the coattails of God. And they're the ones pointing at him. They're the ones making it about God. The ones who made it about themselves, they failed. Right? The ones who tried to do it without God couldn't. The only people who did it are the ones who relied on the promises of God. And that's what we need to take away from this sermon. And I think there's a really helpful reminder that you gave us at the 9 o'clock in your conclusion to take our worksheets and pin them up somewhere that we can see so that we can be reminded of God's promises, which leads to point number one, for us to fully trust in God's covenant promises. And Pastor Aiden, before we kind of explain the unilateral promise and the bilateral promise, what does it mean to fully trust? I use that term uh, in as a defense against people who would say that they trust in God's covenant problems. I often, often have conversations with people 
where they will use terms and definitions like I, I, I trusted in God, but I've never fully trusted in God or I've committed, but I've never been fully committed. It's like, okay, let's look up those <laughs> definitions. What is the de- definition of trust? Right. There, there is no definition of trust without the uh, expectation of whatever that trust was, was full trust or committed. Like there is no half committed, no half hearted commitments. Like it's either you committed or you trusted. So in uh, light of the fact that we know that people communicate this idea of like you can half trust, even though we can't. And point number one, I have articulated fully trusting so that people who can even fool themselves into believing that they do trust in God's covenant promises I'm trying to meet them on their own terms and say, but do you fully trust in God's covenant problems? And it, it should lead us to the reality that you're either all in or you're not. We either do trust or we don't. And this is just, hey, look, ask yourself again, do you fully trust in God's covenant promises? And when you, when I hear covenant promises, you know, <clears throat> some person who's their Bible, well, it's like, well, which one? Well, sure, all of them. Mm-hmm. But there are some ones. There's the bilateral uh, covenants and the unilateral covenants. And can you remind us, of one, one, which is which, what do they mean by each? And then two, can you answer the question of, okay, if the, if we're in a unilateral unilateral relationship, why live for God? Right. Bilateral, meaning two parties present, making, uh, making petition, uh, mosaic covenants, bilateral. We talked about that in the service. Uh, unilateral, the Davidic covenant is unilateral had nothing to do with david had everything to do with god's promises what made the mosaic covenant bilateral god would say i will do this and israel would say i will do this and god says i'll do this and israel said i will do this uh and then basically at the tenets are if you will do what i say I will bless you. And if you don't do what I say, I will curse you. And then what made the Davidic covenant unilateral? Because God spent that time saying, I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will make you a great king. I will, I will make you and I will make your line uh, on the throne forever, period. And what did David have to do? Absolutely nothing. And I know that's hard. What do you mean he didn't have to do anything? Well, listen, his, the faithlessness of the kings created enough calamity on their own. But let me tell you, if David and his sons could have messed it up, they would have, because they did. And so the only reason that covenant remains is because of God saying, I will, period. And it's the same way that we apply the unilateral covenant to the new covenant that we have in Christ. That if you can lose your salvation, you would have done it. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? If it had to do with you and God, you making commitments and God making commitments, you would have lost in a bilateral covenant with God because you cannot keep your side of the promise. And so the new covenant had to be unilateral if it was going to work. It had to be completely God's work and not ours if it were going to be efficacious, if it was going to work, if it was going to be of usefulness to God and his people. It had to be all God. And so for us, that's why it's important. The unilateral covenant in the, especially the New Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, which are both, in a sense, very tied together because they have to be through Christ, uh, is so important to us because it shows that for us to have anything good, it comes completely from God. And the only thing that we've added to it is sin. Uh, and then, yeah, follow-up question was what? Why live for God if it's just unilateral? Yeah, why, why live for God if it's unilateral? Uh, I used it even as I did the Life Group Leader uh, podcast is, uh, we're having a son. His name is Titus. Uh, we did not consult with him about having him. 
As a matter of fact, uh, my wife and I uh, decided we wanted to try for a baby, Lord willing. He was going to give us one, and he did. Uh, he's just waiting to make his uh, external uh, grand entrance. Grand entrance. And, uh, but we did not ask him if he wanted to be our child. As a matter of fact, it was a unilateral decision. Did not even take him into account. Unilateral thing that me and my wife did. Now, in that case, do I still expect my child to love me? Yes. Yeah. He better. He better love his mama too. It didn't have nothing to do with his part in it, but he still has an expectation to love his mother and father. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it very clear in that particular unilateral commitment that a child should honor his mother and father. And that honor, in case you want to be a Western-minded person, includes the commitment to love them. And so, I mean, even just that, like, why, why should we live for the Lord even if it was unilateral? Because he's your father. Because he is your savior. Because he has redeemed you from sin. Because he has taken you from darkness. I mean, can we keep going? I mean, that's why you live for him. Out of love and commitment and adoration for the one who did what only he could do for the people who could not do it. Well, Pastor Hayden, that was a mic drop moment right there. Point number two was to eliminate idols in your life. And this is where, Compass, we really need to pay attention to and take heed. And if you walk away in, from the sermon a little scathed, good, because we need to make sure we are at war with the idols in our life or the potential idols in our lives. And I want to address, Pastor Hayden, why, even with the good kings, how do they all, most all of them, maybe I can think of one of Josiah and maybe Manasseh after he repented, um, what was their big issue with idols? They are making it about themselves. Uh, their big issue with idols is they adored things that weren't God. They went after things. They spent their their mind and their uh, equity, things they had on them. I, I Maybe this doesn't completely go to it, but I can't remember which king it was, but even... Uh, as the tabernacle was going around and they had the temple, they put Moses's staff, the, the snake, the serpent, bronze serpent, in the, in the temple. And there was a time in uh, the devalued kingdom where they began worshiping even that thing. And I don't remember which king it was, but the king took it and he shattered it. Like, can you imagine how many people got angry at him that he shattered something that God used so mightily? Like something that people would look at and say, well, God did that. It's like, well, God didn't tell you to worship it, right? I mean, the same thing we talk about with our kids. We can worship our kids. We can worship sports. We can worship relationships. We can worship all these things. And you can say, well, didn't God create marriage? Didn't God create our kids? Yeah, but he didn't tell you to worship them. And you mentioned the 9 a.m. that you we can even worship the church yeah. wrongly. How can we do that? I think it's the same concept of the, of the bronze serpent. I mean, that was used to do, do a great move of God during a time where it was needed, to, to, and God used it to save Israel in so many ways. And in the same way, what, what, are you, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the organism, the people? Is that what you're doing? Are you worshiping the organization? I mean, what... Or the it, organ. Or the organ. What? The organ. The music. Oh, organ. The, <laughs> like, I don't know where we're going with that. Uh, yeah, I mean, are you, are you worship? What are you worshiping? Because if you're not, I mean, you can, yeah, worship the church in, hey, I got to be there every day. If I'm not there every single day, then I'm then 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 what? Of course, we'd love to have you here today, but that's not about that's not what this is about. This is about worshiping God. When you are here, are you committed to the Lord? Not are you here and could you be here apart from the existence of God and still be happy? Right. That's that's the point of all of that. And so yeah, you can worship most anything. As a matter of fact, that's the reason that's such a big deal in Scripture. Because no matter you can't you can never 
you can never destroy every idol that, that exists on earth because we will worship rocks and plants and grass. And if you don't think we do, just look around at politics and look around at our culture. We worship so many things that you're not just going to be able to, to, to destroy every existent thing, but all those existing things are supposed to point us to the tr- one true God. And don't think that you and I will not fall into that danger. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 is abundantly clear. Don't think you stand lest you fall. And we have to make sure that we are looking for the idols in uh, our lives. And so, uh, Pastor Hayden, how can we, I mean, I love how you said, don't give it names, just throw it away. That's what it deserves. How can we practically throw away these idols? I think if you look at that application question number three, uh, I, we do a three-step question that teaches you exactly how to do that. How do you define an idol biblically? Colossians 3, 5, and 8, Romans 1, 21 through 25, I think those, those define well what an idol is. And so you define it biblically. Then second, you identify the idols in your own life. You take that definition and, and you hold it up. You juxtapose it up against everything in your own life. And if if that juxtaposition of the definition uh, applies to anything else in your life, and I, we have a, that Gospel Treason book that has some good questions that can help you along with the definition of Colossians and Romans, that if you put those up against anything in your life and that definition aligns with whatever it is, whether it's your, your nice boat, right? whether it's your job, whether it's your kids, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your money, uh, keep going on and on and on, your addictions, all, all those things, then that is an idol. You identified it. Congratulations. Now, what? third question, what does eliminating that idol consist of? How can you go and eliminate that idol in your life? Are we selling our boat? Right? Am I? Do I need to look at Scripture and see what it really says about my children and how they're separated from God and they've been conceived in sin since they've been born and the real great need they have is to be made wise unto salvation? And that my responsibility for them is to prepare them for the life ahead of them, not for me to find my fulfillment in seeing all the good things that they're doing here and now. Right? I mean, how will you eliminate idols? And so identify them, define them, identify them, and eliminate them. And there's a lot of practical ways you can do it. I hope your life group will take time to look at those in depth. And let me share with you a couple questions. Uh, there's a resource we'll mention at the end of Gospel Treason. There's a few questions. We keep saying we'll mention it at the end, but we are also mentioned it twice already. So. But hey, you never know. It's a good <laughs> book. It's a good re- You should it's buy good. this book. It's good. Um, but questions to help you identify what you really worship. Now, these are neutral questions, and we'll explain that in a second. Things you'll sacrifice for, things you'll spend time on, things you'll spend money for, you'll talk about it all the time. You'll protect it and defend it. You'll serve it. You'll protect, uh, perfect it. You'll think about it. You'll worry about it. You'll get angry when someone blocks you from it or messes with it, and you'll build your schedule around it. Now, if there's anything on that list that's not God, that's the idol you need to be looking out for. Because you can do that exact thing with God, and it's just called worship. You can worship God by sacrificing your time, effort, and energy for him. You can spend time with him. You can spend your money on him. You can talk about him. You'll protect and defend his honor and his name. You'll Mm -hmm. serve him. You'll think about him. You'll be concerned about his mission being done here on earth. You'll be angry when someone mocks him, and you'll build your schedule around him. So you see how these are just neutral statements to help uh, help you see what do you worship? What do you worship? Is it God or something else? Good. Well, Compass, you hopefully you walked away a little scathed just now, but here is the the ointment. Here is the medicine right now. Here is the hope, and it's point number three: to patiently wait for your vindication. And, and Pastor Hayden, 
what is one thing that they need to remember in this vindication aspect of your sermon? That that future vindication is why we see a great need to eliminate idols in our lives. And, and for that for that matter, doing all the things we do for the Lord, because there's going to be a day where we're vindicated. We look forward to the future of our vindication, why we did all the things that we did in the here and now, why we didn't just live for today while we're living for eternity, why we forsake sin. Uh, I, I shared another story with our Life Group Leader podcast when I was uh, going into ministry in my biological family, who many of them are Christians. Uh, they would ask, well, what are you doing this for? You know pastors don't get paid much money. You know uh, you know that's just not a great great financial life choice. How are you going to raise a family? Well, you know, da, da, da. They didn't really care about me raising a family, but that's not the point. Uh, and it was like, listen, I didn't feel the need in that moment to give them all the reasons why I was going to be in ministry. And I didn't feel a need to give them a secular rationale of why pastors can make money. Because I shall look upon that vindication, as Micah 7, 9 says, when Christ comes. Because when Christ comes back, and my family may be dead and gone, but they are going to stand face to face with God, and I, I will be vindicated in that very moment without saying a word, because they'll say, that's why he did that. In the same way for you guys, there's a re- you do all these things because there's a future vindication, and, it's, and it is our glorification, right? It is us seeing the reality that we could have spent it all here and now, but we didn't because we stored up our treasures in heaven where Christ guarantees that there'll be no more bodily deterioration, no more death, no more illness, no more struggle with sin. And so I mean, that's what I mean. That's the excitement of laying, hey, man, my body ain't getting any better here. Right? My life's not getting any better here. The reality is I can live for the Lord here as my body's deteriorating, as my mind is deteriorating, because, man, there's so much more. And I, there, there'll be so much more proof of that at our coming vindication. Not that there's no proof now. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit in your own life at salvation is proof. The, the scriptures that have been preserved for us in, in, a, in, a, in a consistent manner where there has been no profitable objections to scripture that would lead to its fallibility, all those things should be ex- examples of even the current vindication you would have to say you trust in these things. But uh, there's coming a time where... All people will see the reason why Christians did what we did to live the way we did for Him. All right, well, Compass, we have some application questions. Make sure you do them. Write some answers before Life Group, so you yeah, make sure you answer these questions before you jump into Life Group because it's going to help you actually dive into God's Word in your life. If you love your Life Group, if you love your people, you need to prepare so that as you share application, that other people can say, "Man, that's right. I need to apply it that way in my life." Not just off the cuff type uh, conversation, but thought through, prayed up, uh, you know, good application to these questions is necessary. And so prepare so the depth of your conversation will be helpful and meaningful in your life group. So with that being said, what is a direction we can take with these questions that you want us to land on? Yeah, I gave you guys question number three already. Uh, Question number two, again, it talks about Hebrew 8, 6 through 13, which is just quoting Jeremiah 31. And uh, I wanted to give you the, the New Testament perspective on that prophecy, which is out of Hebrews 8, 6, and 13. Uh, and it, we asked the question, how do the unilateral covenants between David and also Jesus provide us with confidence to fully trust God's covenant promises? I, I hope when you look at that kind of question, it's, it's question or answers like, well, because it had nothing to do with me. I'm fallible. God's infallible. Christ is infallible. David was fallible. But that promise had nothing to do with David. It had everything to do with God and his promise to David. 
I mean, question number one, I just pray, and I hope you can put that and make it very applicable in your own life by always being able to point to God within the covenant promises. Like, And that's another thing about idolatry. Right? If you look at if you, whatever you're doing in your life, if you can't point to the progenitor of it, the fulfiller of it, and the continuation of it in God, then it's probably an idol. Right? The, the, the fact of these covenants are it had everything to do with God. Idols say it has everything to do with you. And so you have to be able to look at what's going on in your life. Do I own... Uh, do I go deer hunting in my stand every day for the Lord? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can say, oh, no, I don't. I go for me, right? Even question number one should help you realize why you're doing things, whether you're doing them for the Lord or whether you're doing them for yourself. All right. Well, Compass, we have a couple resources for you, actually more practical uh, resources. Uh, Pastor Aiden, what's the first re- resource that we have written down? Resolving Everyday Conflict and what does it to do with the, Sandy. What does it to do with idolatry? Oh, well, all conflict has to do with idolatry. Every, every, every single conflict you deal with in your life has to do with some, an idolizing of something. Something has you got your attention, something has your investment, something has all of your thoughts, and uh, it conflicts with some it conflicts with God primarily, but also in your relationships with other people. So that's another reason why vindication is important. It'll keep you out a little more. It'll keep you out a lot of personal conflict. Our encompass the other resource that we would highly recommend. You can purchase this out on Amazon is Gospel Treason by Bragg Bigney. This is just a really fantastic resource that really help you to identify the idols in your life, to see the gravity of that sin, and also to be able to give you hope of which direction to take with those idols and what to replace it with. So Gospel Treason by Bragg Bigney, I will warn you, it will you will not leave unscathed, but you will leave with hope. All right. right. You guys are jumping into this week's Daily Bible Reading Spotlight. All right. On? All right. We are are going to just cover Isaiah 40 to 66. We're just going to cover the rest of Isaiah, essentially Mm, the second half. And so even though this week we're ending on like chapter like 61, I'm like, well, might as well just finish 66 before we talk about Jeremiah. Yeah. So we are going to do this quick for the sake of time. But this is where Isaiah, this work gets, I think, really good. Uh, hmm. This is the yeah. The rest of it wasn't. The rest <laughs> of it was great, but this is kidding. where we walked I'm out of the kidding. first half scathed yeah. and yeah. kind of burnt a little bit. The hope, the is, hope is the right hope here. Is here. I, I, this is where the yeah. hope is, here and is. this is where the name of Isaiah kind of gets his like gravitas. Mm. That is Isaiah, meaning the salvation of Yahweh. And here it's going to look like this. And as a reminder, as Pastor Hayden explained, we're in a divided kingdom where. At this at this point in Isaiah, the northern kingdom has fallen already to the northern uh, to Assyria, and now Isaiah is going to f- uh, forecast and foretell and prophesy about the coming exile through Babylon against Judah. And so, the beautiful part about this is pay close attention. You're going to see some a lot of familiar words because the New Testament quotes this a lot, and especially do you know who Matthew. Matthew. And so pay close attention because Pastor Hayden's going to be preaching and to fulfill Isaiah, to fulfill Isaiah, to fulfill Isaiah. And here's how you need to look at this. Yes, the New Testament helps us understand the Old, but I would argue the New Old Testament helps us better understand the New. The Old Testament is pointing towards the New Testament the entire time. The Old Testament's pointing to God, specifically Christ, the entire time. And so we need to really understand what's going on so that we can understand why Matthew is bringing up how Christ fulfilled this. We don't understand the fulfillment after the fact. We should see the fulfillment even before the fact, and we should see it fulfilled 
after the fact, which we'll talk about later. Uh, that, I don't even understand where we were going with that. You but can talk to me. But afterward. you're going to teach me about it. We're going to we're going to talk about it. Here but to kind of go through like we did last week, kind of chapter by chapter of about what's going on is chapters forty to about forty eight, um, roughly, or even, yeah, about forty, or even you can say fifty eight is. It's kind of tough. Isaiah kind of does this delicate dance of dancing into the present and dancing into the future. And where these chapters gets a little fun is he's talking about the present and also near fulfillment prophecy and future fulfillment prophecy. And and he could do this, and the, the prophets can do this because they're talking in imagery. And they were able to go into present and future quickly because of the imagery that they would use. It was both, and, and it was a lot of times cosmic Im, Im, imagery. And they were able to talk about what was going on now, but in the in the the literary usage in their genre, it allowed them to say this is happening now. But there's also a fuller, right, a fuller fulfillment of that in the future. The way that you need to look at the prophets is that they know theology. It's not like they're just writing about something they don't know about. They know something is coming, and they even know mm-hmm. about the Messiah to come. They right. know there's an offspring to come, so they know theology and they're pointing towards the new Testament to set it up. It wasn't because like we have the new Testament. Oh, now we understand the old, right? No, they were waiting for something. They just, as you mentioned earlier, didn't see it. They saw, they saw it in the shadows in what we see in reality. They saw the shadows of it. And so they have theology and they're trying to point us towards something. So just going to jump right in Isaiah chapter 40. This is the voices of comfort. This is where you probably know this passage where it says that, you know, we, God shall renew our strength. We, you know, we shall mount up with like wings like eagles and run and not be weary and they not walk and walk, be not faint. But the point is that God's trying to encourage people that's about to go into exile to say, hey, don't you know that the creator of the universe is on your side? So don't grow weary. Understand the unsearchable, that God gives power to the faint. And so make sure you come to the end of yourself and turn to the God who can comfort you. Which leads into chapter 41, where Israel's vindication is going to come through a Messiah-like figure named, not Jesus, Cyrus. Which is a good example of thinking through the word Messiah uh, or uh, the word uh, for Christ. There's a lot of Christ figures in the Old Testament, and Christ is not the only Christ. right? And that, you know, if that baffles you, like, you have to understand that was a word that was used for uh, the, those kind of people that people were looking forward to, like the anointed one, right? The uh, the the one to come. David was a Christ in, in a sense. So and Cyrus is the same way, although not the Christ. No, but he was a Persian emperor that was foretold hundreds of years before the fact. So Isaiah's writing this. Isaiah Cyrus has not been born yet, and Cyrus would be the one to conquer Babylon, and through Cyrus. The Jews get to go back home. This is why he's a messianic-like figure, but he's just a foretaste of the Messiah to come. And so when he, Jesus, when Isaiah later talks about in Isaiah 42 and even through 48, well, Isaiah specifically 42, he talks about the servant of the Lord. He's talking about Cyrus directly, but he's also talking about this grand Messiah to right. come. The near prophecy, future prophecy. Double prophecy is what you call it in, in Scripture. He's talking about something happening, but he's, he's also foretelling the, the future of something bigger that's going to happen. And this is why I said he's in the present, but he's also looking forward to the future where, yes, this Cyrus would help deliver Israel out of Babylon, but there's a greater Messiah to come to, to save them from their sin. And then he talks about how he will save them and regather them um, 
in chapters 43 through 48 and how God is the Savior of Israel. He's just using Cyrus. And later he's going to come himself in as the Messiah, knowing that here I am the one that will have redeemed you. I'm the one that will call you by, uh, by name. You are mine, just like Jesus saying, my sheep know my voice. And so there's the greater fulfillment in that. But then when you start to read Isaiah 49 to 57, this is where you're probably going to smile, get excited. You might underline your Bibles because this is where the suffering servant enters in. And so two quick things. There's two servants here. There's the suffering servant in the negative sense. That's Israel. He's going to be talking about that throughout these next chapters. Like the suffering servant, why are they suffering? Well, because of their sin. But there's another suffering servant who's going to take on the sin of the nation, who's going to take on the sin of the world, in which Isaiah 53 is going to be very explicit, talking about here's the servant to come, talking about Isaiah seeing something in the shadows. He knows that's the the one that's going to save him. He doesn't know it's going to be Jesus Christ, Jesus from Nazareth, but he knows that God is going to come and going to take on the sins of, of the world right here. And the servant is just described as a, in Isaiah 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, and to open the prisons to those who are bound. And this is directly quoted in Luke 4, 28. And Jesus says this about himself. He's saying, I am that servant, that servant who is also God, is, and I am that servant who's going to take on the sins, your iniquities on me. And then kind of wrapping up Isaiah in a nice bow is Isaiah 58 through 66. And this is primarily future. It's a little bit present, but it's primarily future because he's talking about the full restoration to come from God. Talking about the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the Father. How the nation, it's about this nation's prayer of excitement of having the Messiah come and reign and the Lord's response. And Isaiah 66 is such a wonderful chapter to end on, even though it starts, Isaiah starts off so negative, like Israel, Judah, you suck. But here's Isaiah 66 saying, and I'm going to create a new heavens and new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. It's going to be so good in our vindication Hmm. that we won't remember the pain and the suffering that we went through because mm-hmm. like a woman who gives birth to their child, she doesn't, she, she doesn't remember the labor pains when she sees her child. And so this new heavens and new earth didn't just pop up with John and revelation. This is already talking about in the book of Isaiah. And so it's something that we can be encouraged by. And so remember the purpose of Isaiah is to call, you know, God's people, Judah, to a proper, proper covenant relationship with God. But as we look at it, we can first off see how God's vindication is going to be played out and throughout the whole Bible, and that's leading to Jesus. And take time to read Isaiah 53, specifically verses 3 through 12, and, and partially focusing on verse 7. This Jesus, the suffering servant, this unnamed servant, was, was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth and Matthew fulfills this or shows how Christ fulfilled, fulfills this in Matthew 26. When Jesus was on this sham trial, the man said, uh, they accused him saying, Hey, this man said, Jesus said, I'm able to destroy this temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? Or are these, what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. See, Matthew saying, 
the suffering servant that Isaiah saw, who knew he knew that he was going to take his iniquities away, this is him fulfilling it right now. And furthermore, in Matthew 27, we see it for, uh, just come to fruition of how the the all of our affliction was cast upon. He was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. We see that in verses 45 to 46 of Matthew 27, when Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Shabbatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's taking on our sin and he's saving us from our sin. So we can find comfort in God saying he's the vindication, you can almost say has begun because of what yeah. Christ has done and rose from the dead. And now we look forward to the full vindication, looking forward to the new life and how Isaiah described this lamb that Matthew said, this is the lamb. Revelation's going to declare this lamb and the world is going to see the lamb and the people will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And that is not, is that not the same terms you use for the king? All, all praise the king to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. And so that is really the culmination of the reality that Christ is our king uh, and he is the great uh, prophet and priest. And all those things are tied together really well there with Christ being our sacrifice was was, was a priestly thing. And he's also our king, which is a Davidic thing. And so you'll see that playing throughout as well. But Isaiah does a wonderful job even though pointing us into that moment of the ruin of the southern kingdom, uh, and, and but prophesying forward to the future vindication of Israel through a king and through a, through a prophet, through a, a priest who was worthy. Uh, and even then, and this is what the coolest thing about the, is, the, the situation with Israel, they still have not had a king. And so they're still waiting for the same thing we're waiting for right now, the return of the king. Boom, boom, boom. All right. All right. Hey, church, we are so grateful that you're taking time to listen to the Compass Equip podcast. We hope it's helpful. Uh, we'd love to answer any questions you have. If you have any questions about our DBR or any questions about the sermon, we'd love for you to email us, Hayden at CompassHillCountry.org or Evan at CompassHillCountry.org. But uh, right now, let's get into some announcements. We have a prayer night on October 16th. We want everybody to be there. We're going to pack this house out. Everybody. Pack out prayer night. We want to pray for souls to be saved. And we've had a lot of souls being saved. A lot of people in our church have been saved recently, and we're praying for a a continual great movement of God here in this church for more people saved. Uh, But that is 5 to 6.30 p.m. on October 16th. Love to have you there. Women's breakfast on October the 22nd. We're going to have a great time of fellowship, jumping into God's Word. Candace Jacobson is teaching out of James chapter 3, and we're looking forward to hearing from the Lord uh, on the 22nd. And our Compass Kids Choir is in full swing. Rehearsals are happening. Uh, registration closes October 20th. So if you have any kiddos right now, any of those kiddos, <laughs> wow, uh, who haven't signed up yet, we would love for you to sign them up. Because remember, we want to teach our kiddos, as Pastor Evan was saying even to our life group leader, leaders earlier, that this isn't about simply them being on stage. It's about them understanding uh, what it means to worship the Lord, what it means for us to do a, a kind of service where you can invite your family and tell them that your kiddos are singing in the choir. And your family who may not know Christ get to come, and they get to hear the gospel, and their and their grandkids or nieces or nephews. It's a great opportunity for you uh, to, to partner with our church in gospel advancement and, and evangelism here at our church. And to teach your kids to look, say, this is how a Christian acts. That's exactly right. All right, church, we're so grateful for you, for uh, what God is doing in this church. We encourage you to invite somebody to join you next week at church. We look forward to seeing you then.